welcome to On the Wet Coast, a podcast about sexuality and ethical non-monogamy of every variety. We talk polyamory and swinging, monogamish and open relationships, from dirty, dirty sex to heartbreak. We share our personal experiences and philosophy, observations and theories, what works for us, and where we fucked it right up. Join us on the Wet Coast. Sex, particularly kinky sex, is still a taboo subject in our sex-negative culture. We're not supposed to talk about it, so we don't learn good communication skills around it. It's one of those things that is supposed to just kind of happen. We hang on to a lot of the messages we got about sex growing up, and even those of us who consider ourselves fairly open about our sexuality still retain many of the hang-ups and shame feelings. Learning to talk about what we want in the bedroom from the most vanilla of acts... Vanilla is a delicious flavor, by the way. To the most delightfully deviant kinky acts we can think of can benefit us in many unexpected ways. When we learn to ask for what we want, we sometimes even get it. On this episode of On the Wet Coast, we're joined by Stella Harris. Welcome, Stella. Hi, thanks for having me. Stella is an intimacy educator and sex coach, author of Tongue-Tied, Untangling Communication in Sex, Kink, and Relationships, a brand new book, and she teaches everything from pleasure anatomy to communication skills to kink and BDSM throughout the U.S. and Canada. Is there anything you want to add to that? That sums it up nicely. (laughs) (laughs) Much of it stolen from your Amazon bio. (laughs) Does sound familiar. (laughs) A person's entire life in two sentences. So why don't you tell us about this exciting new book you're just releasing or have just very recently released? Yes, absolutely. So uh, depending where we are in the space time, uh, this book is coming out in mid-September. I am so thrilled to have been able to do this project for Cleus. Um, Cleus Press, my publisher, uh, actually approached me about doing this project, which I know never happens. So oh. I'm an- incredibly grateful that they talked to me about this. Um, a thing that I learned, you know, I've been doing sex ed and, and kink education and coaching for a while. And the pattern that I started noticing is no matter what somebody came to me to talk about, or no matter what I was hired to teach, I ended up talking about the communication piece and the negotiation and all of the feelings stuff quite a bit. Mm. Um, There's just, there's no way around any of that. I also sort of learned my lesson that if I title a class, something like, let's talk about our feelings for two hours, uh, no one shows up. So... (laughs) So I've, I learned a lot of ways to incorporate what I think is really important about the communication and negotiation piece into all of the other topics. So yeah. if I'm teaching rope bondage, we talk all about, you know, the things that come up around that specific ways to communicate around that when I'm teaching some sort of a pleasure anatomy or a touch technique for sex class, we talk a lot about how we feel about our bodies, how to interact with our partner's bodies, how to ask people for what they want. And ultimately everything ends up being kind of a communication class. So I was really thrilled that I was able to uh, just pour all of this out into a book and have it in one place. Yeah, that's fantastic. 
Yeah, I, I've, a lot of kink classes are very uh, much about the mechanics of it, and they, when they talk about communication, it's it's just you, you know, you negotiate um, consent for everything that you're going to do, and they don't necessarily talk about how how you actually do that, what that might look like. Right, and inevitably, in every class that I teach, somebody says, "But talking ruins the mood." Oh yeah. boy, yeah. and. And then you have to spend time working on that with folks and explaining the difference between um, the kind of talking that they might be thinking, you know, ruins the mood, which is maybe, you know, in the middle of sex, they, they raise their hand classroom style and, you know. And unless you're doing that kind of role play, I could see that maybe that would be more- <laughs> That could be hot. Yeah, I, I was thinking that it could be hot, but... But if you... If you've set a precedent early on, and yeah. I think that's part of the problem, people are not, uh, they're not asking for a hug or a kiss at the end of a date. They're not asking if they can put their arm around you. They're not asking, can I come stand a little closer? They're not saying, you know, a lot of people are not having an STI talk. A lot of people are not talking about what kind of sex they like before they get in bed. So if they're building on several hours of silence, well, of course, it might be a little strange if then suddenly, in the middle of sexual activity, you start giving detailed instructions of how you want your genitals touched. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think part of that, the trick there is, is setting that precedent early, and then it isn't weird or awkward, and you're just continuing the pattern of talking about everything. Well, and so much of our culture, when we, you know, see sex in movies or TV, like it, it just magically happens and everyone it just flows and everyone knows what they want and no one accidentally puts their hand down on someone's hair and <laughs> and mm-hmm. so we're, we just have no we have no um script for this just based in in what what we're taught well, and I remember a few years ago when the when the conversation from con- around consent was just really starting to um, uh, to take place. Uh, some of the proponents of explicit consent were modeling things that were not sexy, right? Mm. It was the thing that people, you know, often think of, you know, the, a very kind of, you know, mechanical negotiation, you know, um, saying, you know, is, is this okay every 10 seconds when, you know, as opposed to the kind of, um, actually enhancing the sexy atmosphere through, through, uh, um, sexy consent. Yeah, absolutely. And I can see the impulse to go that way, especially I think a lot of that happened, at least in the U.S. on college campuses, you know, in part because things had just been going so far wrong. Yeah. I think kind of needed a, you know, a clean slate and some training wheels. Right. Versus, you know, the, the folks that I tend to talk to, you know, adults that they seem to be able to, you know, fingers crossed, handle a little bit more of the nuance of it. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of the people who come to see me um, are already in some sort of a consenting relationship and are trying to make improvements to their sex life. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I also teach a class called Modern Dating. And and again, a lot of people will ask, you know, how do you know if you're supposed to kiss somebody at the end of the date? And and I say, ask them. And I feel like I'm, um, 
I don't know, like almost like it's making light of the question, but that really hasn't occurred to people a lot of the time that you can just ask if somebody wants something to happen. Because as you were saying, you know, what we get from movies, there really is this perception that we're supposed to be able to read people's minds, that you're just magically supposed to know what other people like. And they've done studies also in colleges about, you know, when people talk about sex, people talk to their friends about what they think their partner's like and sort of exchange tips, but nobody is actually asking the people they're having sex with, yeah. do you like this? They're, you know, they're making a ton of assumptions and then sharing their perceived tips. And I know listening to sex advice podcasts, so often the answer to the question is like, Ask, Ask your, your partner. partner. Like, how am I supposed to know what your partner wants? Right. Um, because, yeah, we, there is such, like, we're not trained to do, and, and there's almost shame around needing to ask someone. What? Absolutely. There's so much ego tied up in this idea of sexual prowess, and needing to ask is seen as some sort of, you know, failure of, of skill somehow, mm-hmm. rather than being, you know, praised for your skills in communication. Right. Uh, yeah. Which is of course how I think it should be. Yeah. The, a lot of the, a lot of the modeling is, um, is, you know, being really smooth and, you know, and, and just, uh, picking the right moment and such. And, um, you know, and and I, I've I've had this conversation with with people before. Like, you know, oh, I I'm I can read it. I you know, I always I always know when it's it's the right time. And I, and my response to that was, you know, sometimes somebody uh, may physically be responding to you, but they actually don't want to kiss you, right? So they mm-hmm. may they may be aroused, but for some reason. They, they might feel like they're not ready. They might want to, you know, um, actually take this step later. And so even if you're reading their body language, their body language may be uh, about their physiological response, but it might not be about what they actually want in their brain. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, and, and um, Emily Nagoski, I think that's how you say her name, um, talks about that in Come As You Are, about like sort of discordant, arousal signs like that you're getting you know someone might be wet and not aroused or be you know you know and there's often like well i thought you were turned on how are you not wet and that sort of thing or you know with erections and and everything there's you know what the body is doing is not necessarily indicative of what the mind wants yeah you could even be aroused and just not want to have sex with that person yeah Mm mm-hmm yeah, absolutely. There's really no no way around the <laughs> simple direct communication as, as much as people are trying to find mm. some way to not have to do the asking. And I get it. The asking is terrifying. And yeah, yeah not only do people call into podcasts with this stuff, but this happens in my office. People will come into my office, you know, tell me these things that they like to try. And I will say, well, have you told your partner that? And inevitably, the answer is no. And it felt safer for them to come to a complete stranger's office and tell them their sexual fantasies instead of telling the person that they've been with for 10 years. Uh, Because if I, you know, were to respond in a way that sort of rejected them, 
no big loss, right? They never have to see me again. Of course, I wouldn't do that, but that's sort of the fear. Right. But you, but with your partner, you know, if they think that you're a weirdo for the thing that you requested, then you have to deal with the aftermath of that rejection. So I think if we want to train people to make requests and tell us what we want, we also have to create a space where doing so feels safe. And so all the little throwaway comments we make, if you're talking about, you know, some celebrities bodies or, you know, the latest public sex scandal and you shame something, you know, that, that is mentioned in the media, those messages are getting absorbed and people are seeing you know, oh, this person is, you know, is shaming of somebody with kinks. So I'm never going to mention the things that I'm into. Oh, hundred percent. This mm-hmm. is, this is something that, um, that, you know, Kat and I have really kind of, uh, grown through the last few years is, you know, uh, kind of unraveling a lot of the unconscious, uh, kink shaming that we've done all our lives and has made it hard for us to communicate to each other and other partners. And so, yeah, like, um, if when you, when you make jokes about water sports, you might actually be crushing your partner's soul a little bit because of the secret thing that they've never told you about, or, you know, like there's, um, or about, um, uh, so, you know, something around BDSM and, you know, how maybe it, it creeps you out and, and the, you know, the, um, the, uh, the potential, um, the potential damage that you're, you're doing to, to someone's sexual self just unconsciously just through you know making assumptions about your partner's uh, uh private sexual life yeah absolutely yeah i like to sort of adapt the line uh you know from adam's family where where wednesdays you know says the the homicidal maniacs look like everybody else and yes. I'm constantly telling people, you know, us perverts, we look like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what people are expecting, but whenever somebody comes to, you know, a kink party or a play party and it's just people, (laughs) uh, that seems surprising to folks. You know, I'm not sure what we're supposed to look like, uh, (laughs) but, but it really is, you know, we are your friends and neighbors and colleagues and the people you see at the grocery store um they're probably so, yeah. expecting them to be taller there you go. uh-huh just all all pvc all the time yeah, yeah that's exactly. what i was gonna say more leather more more rubber yeah more spider gags and yeah yeah i mean someone just asked me the other day like oh what should i you know i'm so nervous about going to this play party what should i wear and i just like looked down and i'm like well i'm gonna be wearing this floral summer dress that i'm already wearing because you know, I can't be bothered to change. And I learned very early on in my kink journey that, that corsets are just too much, too much work, except for all but the special occasions. Right. Um, and so, yeah, but I mean, a lot of this, it seems intimidating, but it, it can have a simpler entry point than you think. Um, and it doesn't, I think that's a, another reason people don't bring up some of this stuff is they think it only sort of, you know, counts in air quotes if it is somehow really extreme yeah, or right, looks like yeah. they've seen in porn and they think, well, if I don't want to be fully in PVC and swinging from the rafters, then that is somehow not kink or it's not kinky enough to be worth mentioning or exploring or it's not going to be kinky enough for the people who are into kink or, you know, so many shoulds and not enoughs get thrown around. And often people who are interested in something 
go way farther than they actually want to because they feel all of that pressure of all the shooting on them that's been happening. Um, so they might just want like a little bit of light spanking, but here they are with like the most intensive straps and canes happening across them because they thought that was what it was supposed to look like. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I tell, I tell clients all the time, you know, I get couples who, who want to explore some sort of dominance and submission or power exchange. And they'll say something like, Oh, but I don't want to be mean to them, you know, because that is sort of the, the model that you see, or, you know, that's the punchline on, on TV shows, you know, and telling people these things can work however you want them to, you can be kind and nurturing and also be playing with power and playing with who's in charge there are no prescribed ways that sex needs to look or that kink needs to look. If everybody involved is a consenting adult that's happy with what's happening, then you're doing it right. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about when communication goes wrong. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, what, what we were just mentioning of people sort of doing the too much too soon is, you right. know, they start talking about something, hey, you know, I kind of want to try this. And then suddenly they're, you know, way too far into a scene um, is is sometimes like when people start talking about it and and even they might in their own minds just think that that is where it has to go as opposed to starting kind of light and and seeing like oh well maybe let's venture like you know let's dip our toes in here as opposed to just like throwing ourselves in the lake and finding out if we can swim yeah absolutely i think that people are uh, for some reason, when it comes to sex and kink, think that trying something needs to be going all in. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to sort of describe it as, you know, what happens if you go to an ice cream shop and you want to try a new flavor, they give you one of those tiny little taster spoons so you can see if you like it or not. Yes. You can try as many things as you want before you decide. And if you don't like any of the you know, outlandish seasonal flavors, you can always get whatever your, you know, backup go-to favorite flavor of ice cream is. And And you don't have to jump in with two scoops of butt sex. Exactly. Exactly. But people think that if people, you know, someone says to their partner, Hey, I'd like to try anal sex. The first thing that comes to mind is like, Oh, I have to like shove the biggest thing we can possibly find in the house into my ass. And I I don't know why we have that sort of all or nothing mentality only around sex and kink. And I tell people that all the time, like you can try something, you know, with the little taster spoon amount, if it's, you know, if you're trying out butt stuff, like external stimulation counts, that's still anal play. And that's a great way to find out if you even like stimulation in that area, getting used to having that area of your body touched before it is some sort of intense all in thing. And I don't think that people define their terms. You know, you were talking about the spanking ending up with straps and paddles Um, saying to someone, I'd like to try spanking. That's the beginning of the conversation, not the end, because Mm -hmm. if one person's idea of spanking is some love taps during sex and the other person is thinking of, well, now I'm going to go grab the wooden cutting board and hit you with it. You know, both of those things might technically be spanking, but you're going to get really different results. Yeah, and and one one of the parties may have very different ideas about how um, 
you know, power dynamics play into that uh, in in a very different way than than the other person. So if one person's expecting, you know, uh, a real sort of dominance uh, play along with the spanking, and the other person's like, no, I I just want to feel some impact. That's gonna have a very that um, you know that's that's not gonna work for one of those people. Absolutely, yeah. You have to think of all of the the different little pieces that need to be discussed in advance. Yeah. And that, that expectation of basically your partner, like reading your mind or you reading their mind when you're talking about these things, if you don't go down and, and do the extra steps of like, okay, you know, I'm interested in, in trying some impact play, like, what does that look like? You know, where are we going to do it? What would you like to be hit with? Like, what is your expectation? What is your tolerance? Like, going through all of those extra steps to to break it down and figure out what people actually want versus just assuming that you, you can understand it. And sometimes people don't, don't know what they want or they mm-hmm. don't know what they're going to like. You can't even begin to read someone's mind if they, they don't even know yet. You just, you know, you have to figure it out together sometimes. Yeah. I, th- I, I think, um, I think people need to give themselves permission to get things wrong, you know, to, um, I asked for this thing when actually what I meant was something slightly different or, you know, I asked for this thing and, and actually it turns out I don't really like it at all. And, and people are so afraid of, of getting it wrong that that becomes such a barrier to even asking. And I think having a contingency plan for that can be really helpful. Again, you know, with the ice cream, if you don't like the thing you tried, you can still get your scoop of vanilla or chocolate. But with sex, if people don't like the thing they tried, that tends to be it. Like yeah, we have to break up now. comes to an end. Everybody just goes to their separate corners to feel bad about themselves. Mm-hmm. Instead of having pre-planned, okay, we'll try, you know, A, B, and C. And if we don't want to do any of those for more than a minute or two, then we'll do whatever, whatever your sort of go-to ice cream flavor of sex is. So maybe you're having, you know, some vanilla missionary connective sex. Great. Maybe your plan is, oh, if this thing doesn't work out, let's go snuggle and watch some Netflix. But whatever it is, have that contingency planned in advance. And that way, that sort of idea of not liking something isn't as scary. Because I think sometimes people continue to do things that they're not really enjoying because they do, in fact, want to be engaging with that person. And they think that stopping that activity means everything with that person has to come to an end. Yeah, and, and uh, what I sometimes struggle with the, the thing where uh, I'm really liking most of what's going on, but then it's like, there, there's this one thing, it really isn't working. Someone's being, you know, maybe they're, they're uh, um, squeezing my leg just too hard or they're being uh, too rough with my nipple. And it's, it's, like, um, it's like, okay, um, maybe they'll stop doing that. And, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's kind of like I, I don't want to break the kind of trance that I'm in. But the thing that keeps happening keeps kind of pulling me out. And so, um, yeah, knowing when to kind of, you know, tap somebody and say, hey, a little gentler with that. Maybe don't do that um, with, without the train kind of leaving the, the tracks entirely. Yeah, and you can make that sort of thing safer for the other person by simply asking for feedback every so often. Yeah. Saying, yeah. How, how is this pressure? Would you like this harder or softer? Something like that. And that can, that makes it safe for the other person to say, oh, actually a little gentler would be great. Yeah, for sure. And I think the more you communicate through all 
parts of the the various acts that you might be doing, it helps you be able to, in the moment, say a little gentler without it feeling like, oh, I've wrecked the whole flow of this magic time we were having by speaking words. You know? <laughs> um, because if if there's been just like ongoing communication and, and discussion, then that's just a piece of it, you know, Absolutely. as as much as like more to the left or a little harder or a little softer, like, you know, it's all just, it's all just a piece of it. Absolutely. So what are some other tools for improving communication? Um, well, to speak to what you were just discussing, you know, if, if there are moments when you do think that using your words would break the mood, you can pre-negotiate for nonverbal communication and nonverbal feedback. Uh, that often works really well in a kink context. Um, not only if you're afraid it's going to ruin the mood, but if you're at a play party that's so loud that you can't hear the other person. Right. Um, I really like having signals like, you know, when you move a little bit away from the other person, it's when you need a break. And when you, you know, move closer or, you know, stick your ass back up, something like that, then you're ready for more impact. Or it can be, you know, going up on your tiptoes versus being on flat feet, or, you know, some people do something like raising a hand. Um, but for some reason, those sorts of nonverbal cues for a lot of folks um, seem less disruptive. Um, so you can certainly negotiate for the kinds of feedback that are that are going to feel like more of a fit for you. Not necessarily just kind of pie facing them and pushing them away. <laughs> I mean, I am all for a little bit of clown play. <laughs> That would be on my no list. <laughs> Speaking of... I'm, I'm a soft maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of... I, I'm not really into food generally because I don't no, like being no. messy, but but I, I do have a penchant for drama, so that might win in this instance. Yeah, and for, for me, for me uh, um, part of part of what's off-putting about the food is is sometimes the smell can be very distracting. and mm -hmm, so. mm -hmm. Plus the sticky... I, I don't approve of sticky. It's, <laughs> yeah. Sticky yeah. is a hard, hard no. One of the only scenes that I actually read it out of is I, I was blindfolded and somebody started dragging apple slices on my skin and then feeding them to me. And that was just, nope, nope. I have done some weird shit in my day, but you just, you keep your apple slices to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Patooey. <laughs> so there's, there's great ways to, to find out about some of these sorts of things, although, you know, probably it would never occur to you to have apple slices on a yes, no, maybe list, but, uh, exactly. You don't, you don't know until you try. And then the first time you try, I said, you know, absolutely not. And that was fine. And we started doing other things and we didn't do the apple slices again. And now I know. Yeah. But that's how, that's how you find out. Yeah, there are a lot of really great yes, no, maybe lists, both for, you know, um, various sex acts and also kink. Um, one of the ones that I, uh, I really liked was in one of your classes, Stella, um, that was about the, the, the feelings and sensations that you want to experience rather than sort of, um, the, the usual lists we see, which are more about specific acts. This was more about the kind of experience that you actually want to have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do think that yes, no, maybe lists are, uh, incredibly valuable. Um, there's one in the book, there's, there's one on my website, but there's a lot of different ways to get at something. And so one of my favorites 
uh, which is also in the book, is that sort of feelings exercise. So think about what are you hoping to experience? How do you want to, to feel? And then, and then get it, get it that way. So sort of like, you know, your GPS, you know, if you tell it where you want to go and it gives you three potential routes. And so if there's a traffic jam, you know, on one of those, you have another way you can go. Um, you know, so if I had been doing, you know, the apple slice thing, because I wanted to feel nurtured and taken care of, and then suddenly realized I hated the food piece, but I still knew where my end goal was. So if I'd done it with nurtured and taken care of as, as the goal rather than food play as the goal, then as soon as food is off the table, then we're like, okay, well, what else would make me feel nurtured? Well, maybe, maybe then they, they brush my hair or, you know, something else along those lines. And so it gives you, it gives you more options of what to do if there's a particular act that you don't like. Well, and, and, um, even, you know, for some reason coming back to food play, which none of us seem to like much. Um, (laughs) if you, if food play was a yes on your yes, no, maybe list, um, there are lots of ways that you could do food play that evoke completely different responses. A lot of food play would be about humiliation, you know, like sort of, you know, smearing it on you and stuffing it into your mouth. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, perhaps laughing and having, you know, a goofy scene. But if you, if you were looking for, you described wanting to feel nurtured and taken care of that type of food play is not going to fulfill that at all. Yeah, no, if somebody wants to just come over and cook me dinner, that would be great. <laughs> I, I too, am really into that kind of food play. <laughs> and that's another define your terms thing, right? Because that, that could be food play. <laughs> I'd even let you, you know, maybe feed it to me. <laughs> oh, wow. No, no, I probably wouldn't, but... <laughs> Just thinking back to the bite-sized pieces of banana bread incident in our life, <laughs> where be something very, very dry and not messy, like yeah, yeah. roasted almonds or <laughs> yeah, where you can, can you can have precise amounts because like yeah. what I think is an appropriate like mouthful of something might not be what someone else feels is appropriate. Uh huh. Such as when we were on a road trip and I demanded banana bread and he shoved a giant piece of banana bread in my mouth. <laughs> so the next time I was requesting, I yelled, bite-sized pieces of banana bread. <laughs> I mean, even that is potentially open to interpretation. Right? <laughs> whose, whose bite is the whose average bite? measure there? Yeah. I mean, I could have baby birded it and that... <laughs> That is definitely on my no list. <laughs> Would have been a challenge while I was driving the car. So. <laughs> yeah, you think uh-huh. roadhead is dangerous, let alone baby bird feeding. <laughs> this took a strange turn. <laughs> but perhaps it brings us to discussing why something is a no. <laughs> Such as safety while driving. <laughs> yeah. The why something is a no, I think, is such an interesting conversation. And I, I generally tell people when I'm you know, walking them through a yes, no, maybe list that while you certainly never want to try to talk anybody into doing one of their no's, I think it can be a really interesting exercise and build intimacy to find out why something is a no. 
because you, you do learn a lot about another person that way. Sometimes you learn hilarious anecdotes like we've just done. <laughs> um, but sometimes you learn about, you know, experiences somebody had in their past that might inform the ways that they engage with sex or kink. And sometimes you find out that something is a no uh, because their interpretation of that term or that act is different than yours. Or maybe because they had a bad experience in a way that could potentially be corrected if they would like to try it again. One that comes up really consistently in my classes is, you know, somebody will say that they're not into anal sex because of that, you know, one drunk time they tried it in college with no lube and no warm up and it hurt. And I will have to say, well, you certainly are under no obligation to ever try anal sex again. But also, if you would like to, may I suggest a great deal of arousal and lots of lube and small objects, um, because that's going to be a different experience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this 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 is an area that is really poorly modeled by by pornography. The what people don't see is like like any kind of stunt. There's a lot of prep work and training that goes into the anal scenes that we see in film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think learning more about why a specific act might be a no can sometimes teach you more about what a person's like arousal um accelerators and brakes can be yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so figuring out pieces like such as you know the discussion we just mentioned of roadhead you know not dying or killing people is is a big you know thing that that tamps down my arousal but (laughs) if if we were parked somewhere safe and couldn't get caught and that kind of thing i would probably be into sucking someone's cock in a car but I just don't want to die. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So like those sort of learning those little pieces of like, I require to feel safe and comfortable and. Estelle's got a train. (laughs) Train. Sorry, y'all. No worries. Um, Yeah. Like I, I really need that, that feeling of safety and comfort to allow my arousal to take place that, like that will help someone figure out sort of in all circumstances what might work for me and what might not. And that really brings up something else that is huge around all of this, which is context. Yeah. Sometimes you're in a context in which something feels safe and sometimes it's not. So it wouldn't be, you know, giving head in a car, you know, that part might be the same context, but there where the difference is, is like while someone is actively driving or parked somewhere completely private, you know, because that shift in the context makes an act either pleasurable or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and perhaps like a, a humiliation scene, you know, done in private versus done at a big dungeon sex party, yeah. you know, might be very different and, and might be different sort of either way, like someone might be really into it publicly and not personally or or really into the quiet intimacy of it but not be willing to do it at all in public Mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's another huge one that changes for people waiting to see if it's gonna happen (laughs) it almost seems like it's waiting till you're talking yeah no probably it's out to get me (laughs) (laughs) yep all right where were we something about context (laughs) yeah so I think, you know, the context comes up and, and discussing the why of all mm-hmm. of it, we, we've definitely touched on that a bit. But, you know, what, 
are you wanting to get out of the situation, the experience, the act can really help you figure out, you know, where to go with it. Absolutely. And those shifts in context as well, I don't think people always plan for. You were mentioning, you know, differences in humiliation play, public and private. I think that that shift, the private to public or back again, is a huge one that people don't always consider. You know, if someone is is planning their first play party, they might think that surely whatever they normally do at home is going to be a good fit at the party, and then suddenly realize that in that different context, oh, maybe I don't actually like this thing when there's an audience. Uh Um, Or the, the reverse is sometimes true for me. Uh, one of my kinks is is being a demo bottom for other instructors because I know that there's a particular way I will push myself when there's an audience mm-hmm. uh, because I can be kind of performative at times. Um, and those same things I'm probably not going to do in private because some of the payoff for me is, is audience response. Um, but I don't necessarily enjoy the act on its own enough to do it for its own sake on my own, you know, or with a partner in private. Um, but the very sort of extremity of it gets such a great audience reaction that I'm happy to do it, <laughs> you yeah. know, for the sake of putting on a good show. What's, what's also interesting is, is how that context can also shift uh, who you might, you mm. might be uh, willing to like, uh, um, you know, mess around or even have sex with somebody at a, at a play party, but not really be interested in the like intensity and intimacy that would come from having one-on-one sex with them alone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For a long time, I hesitated to, you know, on, on the website FetLife, they have your, your fetishes list. And I, I struggled with putting anything on there because as I was thinking about it, I thought, everything that I enjoy is so context specific and person specific. I struggled to think about what, what do I enjoy universally that is never going to be. And it depends because everything depends on, on who and the dynamic with that person and how safe you feel in that moment and where you are and what else is going on. Absolutely. Another way to get um, to some of the, the clarity of of what you might be into is is really talking about what might turn you on about an experience or what might scare you about that same experience. Absolutely. Yeah, those are some questions that I I like to have folks ask when they're thinking about trying something new for the first time. And like the feelings exercise, this is sort of a way to get at something from another direction. Um, You know, if someone is thinking about having their first threesome, you know, asking those questions. Well, what's scary about that? Well, maybe you're you're nervous that you'll feel jealous in the moment. Well, if you realize that that fear is there, then you can start talking about and negotiating around that contingency. What do you want to do if this thing happens? How are you going to, you know, manage these feelings in the moment? Um, but all of that, again, comes down to that sort of um, pre-planning, pre-negotiating, And talking, you know, speaking of communication, uh, a lot of these you can sort of work through in a a dirty talk or fantasy scenario first. Mm -hmm. You know, if you if you talk through something, sometimes you'll find that sticking point. You know, if you're dirty talking about a threesome scenario when when you and your partner are alone and you start saying something like, oh, I can't wait to 
you know, watch so-and-so's face between your legs, something like that. And suddenly the other person can be like, oh, wait a minute, but I don't actually want that with another person. And, mm-hmm. and suddenly you can, you can think of things that you need to pre-negotiate and plan for that you might not have shaken loose in your negotiations otherwise. Yeah. And people often are, are hesitant to talk about the fears involved somehow, like in case it brings them out. Like if we don't talk about this, then it's not going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. If I, if I don't talk about the jealousy, then I won't get jealous. Um, and things like yeah. that. If you name it, you're summoning it. Yeah, pretty much. Beetle juicing the, the problem. <laughs> Candyman, Candyman. Um, yeah, one one of the things that uh, that I found really a useful practice in like sort of uh, play party welcome circles is um, to talk about uh, you know uh, at least one of your boundaries, right? Something that you that you don't want, you know. Often we are currently experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. Um, yeah, Flick was just talking about uh, welcome circles at play parties that people expressing their boundaries. Each person expressing, you know, a specific boundary helps everyone feel safer expressing their boundaries. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, that's another sort of trick or tool that I suggest to people is if you do the vulnerable or scary thing first, it makes it safer and easier for the other person to do it. So if you say what you're into first, you have taken that risk of, you know, sharing yourself the, the the risk of being rejected. And then the other person will say, well, they just did this vulnerable step. Now it feels easier for me to do that as well. And I think that works for everything. I think it works for the STI talks. I think it works for talking about what kinds of sex that you're into. It can even just work for, you know, on, on first dates or, you know, planning a first date, even just admitting that you like someone and would like to hang out with them. All of those things can feel scary and intimidating. And so if you make the leap first, it's, it makes it safer and easier for the other person to respond. Yeah, most definitely. Good tip. (laughs) Um, yeah. So why don't you tell us a bit more about the book and about, you know, the tools that are within the book to help with all the communication stuff that we all have so many troubles with that like even you mentioning like that letting someone know you like them is like whoa you know (laughs) right yeah eventually we're all have that that you know teenager feeling again where yeah it is absolutely scary to put yourself out there I mean I'm almost 38 and I still have that moment sometimes where I'm just like oh no feelings like (laughs) I you know I don't think that ever stops being kind of scary um so there's a lot, there's a lot going on in the book. Um, there's, there's a big chunk at the beginning that talks about figuring yourself out, you know, doing a lot of self exploration, um, before you start involving other people. I think that's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly mean that in terms of the physical pieces. Um, if you don't know how you like to be touched, it's really tricky to tell someone else. So if you're not already masturbating, I, 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 I suggest that as your homework, should you choose to accept it, um, <laughs> figure, figure out how you like to be touched. And a lot of people don't, you know, I get, I get clients all the time who, 
who don't, you know, they, they only do sexy stuff when there's another person around. Um, so that's a big one, but also doing the emotional pieces of that thinking about how you want to feel and what makes you feel safe and doing exercises around some of that. Um, there's an exercise where you, um, sort of sit down and think about sort of the, the highlights of, of your past encounters and think about what, what was it about that, that felt sexy or fun or safe, or, you know, what makes it sort of a standout for you. And you can absolutely do that. Even if you don't have, um, a whole lot of experience, or even if you have no experience, you can pull from, from things in the media, from things in books, you know, what, what scenes in books sort of made your heart rate go up a little bit, made you dog ear the page and, and read them again and again, you know, what was going on there and, and find those patterns of what sorts of things get your attention and doing as much of those self-exploration pieces as possible um, so that you, you start getting an idea of what you want to ask for from other people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of that solo exploration is a good time to think about why things are no's, like, like we talked about earlier. The, um, you know, uh, I used to have a lot of aversion to BDSM and rough sex, and, you know, this is because of a lot of sort of, you know, very negative and violent associations with that. And going to, um, going to, to kinky parties really helped to kind of dispel a lot of the kind of dark mythology around that stuff for me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And all of those things, I mean, that stuff that you can do alone also, you can go to a play party, even if it's just to watch, you can do that on your own and see what appeals to you, see what, what looks interesting to you. We, we have this, you know, you were saying sex is one of the only things that we, we generally don't get to learn by watching, but if you're willing to take that leap and be in those environments, you know, most major cities do actually have somewhere where you can go and you can watch what people are doing and sort of take little mental notes about what looks good, what doesn't look good and start learning that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because we often, yeah, have no idea until we're, we're seeing some things that, you know, how it's actually even going to going to resonate for us well i mean as as much as people rail against the kind of the way it models consent um 50 shades of gray really um opened people up to exploring a lot of things because you know that type of thing was not part of the mainstream conversation about sex for uh for a long time um mm -hmm. and uh you know it, it's just just like um, for for some people, uh, shows like you know um, Dexter or Hannibal can kind of you know model some of the kind of uh, you know sexy kind of dangerous atmosphere. Fifty Shades isn't meant to be a manual on how to do BDSM, but uh, the sparking of fantasies from that and even mainstream entertainment. Right, this thing happens where when we don't have a lot of resources the ones that we do have get treated as if they're educational. Right. So we <laughs> yes. so rarely get to see anything about sex that porn gets used as a guide, even though that's not what it's meant to be. It's meant to be entertainment. And so because there aren't a lot of examples or, or guides around kink that 
folks in the mainstream notice or have access to than something like Fifty Shades, which was only ever supposed to be entertainment, gets treated as though it is a roadmap or a guide, which is not what it was meant to be. But again, if it does get people talking about it, if it gets people realizing that there are more things that are an option, then hopefully those people do get the other books and filter into some of the classes and, and start learning more of what might work for them. Mm-hmm. Her name is Stella Harris, and the book is Tongue Tied, Untangling Communication in Sex, Kink, and Relationships, on sale in September, so maybe soonish, uh, depending on when this podcast uh, comes out. Thanks so much for being on the Wet Coast, Stella. Can you just remind us before we close things up of uh, where people can reach you, uh, where they can find you online? Absolutely. So you can find me on my website, uh, stellaharris.net. That has links to a lot of the other things, but you can also find me under Stella Harris Coaching on Facebook, Stella Harris Erotica on Instagram, Stella Erotica on Twitter, um, Googling Stella Harris Portland or Stella Harris and a lot of other interesting terms will (laughs) use some my writing online. I, I have a column for one of our local papers here, the Willamette Week. You can you can find some of that. That's linked from my website as well. So come find me on the internet. Yay. Thanks for listening. Please help us get into the ear holes of more listeners by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or other platforms. Become one of our favorite people in the whole wide world by contributing to our Patreon, patreon.com slash on the wet coast. You can follow us on Twitter at Wet Coast Cat, that's cat with a K, at Sirius Flick at On the Wet Coast. Email comments or questions to contact at onthewetcoast.com. You can hear a lot more of Cat and Flick by buying the audiobooks of Cooper Beckett's novels A Life Less Monogamous and Approaching the Swingularity at coopersbeckett.com and save 10% with the code Wet Coast. And go to onthewetcoast.com for Cat's blog and more, or find them over at lifeontheswingset.com. And you can get Kat Stark's book, Yelling in Pasties, The Wet Coast Confessions of an Anxious Slut, available now on ebook and paperback. Go to Amazon.com or visit OnTheWetCoast.com for links to other marketplaces. Check out other awesome sex-positive podcasts on the Swingset Network at Swingset.fm. I'm Tina Horn, author of Love Not Given Lightly and host of the Wired People Into That podcast. And you're listening to a Swingset podcast at swingset.fm. Hi, puppers. Nutmeg. Hi, puppers. Hey. Who's a good pup? <laughs> <laughs> what? Why are they? Why are they talking to me?